Our message this morning is entitled, A Psalm of Suffering. And if you will, you can turn with me to the book of Psalms and the 69th Psalm. Psalm number 69. As of late, we've been discussing together the concept of suffering from a biblical and thereby a Christian perspective. And just again, in brief, the Christian, the follower of Christ, is to have a different approach and a different response to suffering in this world than those in the world around us. Being a follower of Christ ought to affect the way that we respond to suffering. Reminding you of some of the things that we've discussed, we looked first in our introductory message in this series at the causes of suffering in the world, the fact that all suffering hails back to the transgression of Adam. God created a paradise, and we live in a broken world because of the sin of Adam. When you look at the thorns and thistles of life and you work by the sweat of your face, understand it's not because God created a broken world. It's because Adam transgressed the law of God. And then we considered other secondary causes of suffering in the world like chastening and judgment, persecution, etc. We studied what we can learn in our suffering. We learn our frailness. We learn to rely upon God. We learn to look to Him and to humble ourselves before Him. We grow in character. And we also experience His power far more intensely when we suffer than when life is at ease. Remember the church at Laodicea. They were rich and increased with goods and thought they had need of nothing, and they didn't know that they were really wretched and naked and miserable and poor and blind. So often in our ease, we fail to understand just how much we depend upon God, and we learn that in afflictions. We considered how following Christ invites affliction, because the world hates Christ, and that's going to be central to the message that we deliver to you today. Because the world hates Christ, the world is going to hate you. Because it hated him first, it will hate you if you follow him. Because Satan is defeated and he knows that he has but a short time. He afflicts the followers of Christ in the world. You get that from Revelation chapter 12. In message 3, we focused on how we are to trust God because he is Lord. And when we say he is Lord, we don't merely mean that he at some great distance is aware of the things that happen in this world and one day will bring it to an end, but he is the Lord God omnipotent who reigns in heaven and earth. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. All power belongs to him. He has all knowledge, and he rules on his throne. Amen. There's no threatening his reign. Because of that, what are we to do? We are to trust him. And we know that he always knows best. He always knows better. We trust in him. We trust in his grace. Last week, we delivered a message to you entitled, When I Am Afraid, because as the psalmist David said, there are times that we are afraid, and when we are afraid, we call upon him. We run into his name as unto a strong tower, and even in affliction or pain or emotional anguish, we can find relief we can find deliverance from that in the hope of his power, of the resurrection, of a day that is coming when all the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in his people. And so in times of fear, we run to him the way a child runs to his parent. Today we conclude this series with a glimpse into the very sufferings of Christ himself. I told you five weeks ago or four weeks ago that this was an unintentional series. I had one message that I wanted to deliver. And one message became two. Two became three. Three became four. And today, you might think I have all of this mapped out in advance. Today, this is just an act of God's providence as we meet this afternoon to consider the Lord's death as we show his death in communion Today in our message, we bring this thought of suffering to its conclusion with the glimpse into the sufferings of Christ as we consider Psalm 69, the sufferings of Christ himself. 
As a bit of a foundation, no man has ever suffered in the world like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. To be very clear, as we think about the suffering of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and notice that we refer to him as the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a very important thing to consider the titles of Christ. Some people call him good master, some people call him teacher, some people call him a prophet, some people call him a historical figure, but you need to call him the Lord Jesus Christ because that includes all that he was and is. Jesus the man from Nazareth, Christ God's anointed Messiah, the Lord, the title of Jehovah in the Old Testament. That title itself encapsulates all that he is as God and man. The Lord Jesus Christ, to be very clear this morning, was verily God, but he was also verily man. What do we mean by that? That he was both completely divine, 100% deity, and at the same time, he was completely human. He was a man with body, soul, and spirit, bone, flesh, blood, hair, growth, hunger, and pain. But at the same time, again, he was completely divine. He was deity. He was God, the Word, who was with God, who was God, the same was in the beginning with God, made flesh, who dwelt among us. John says of him in 1 John that we have looked upon him with our eyes, our ears have heard him, and our hands have handled the Word of life. He was God. A fellow called me on the phone a couple of weeks ago and it sounded like a gotcha call from the moment I answered. And I shouldn't have answered because it said private number. Usually if it's a private number, I don't answer. Because usually it's some guy trying to call me about my extended warranty. You know, we've got even private billionaires now that are sending people, planning to send people to the moon and to Mars. And I can just see it. The first man lands on Mars and he gets a little bleep bleep on the screen. And it's a guy from Earth offering him an extended warranty. I answer the phone, and I can tell this guy is asking gotcha questions. And he tried to ask me, he said, I've seen on your website that you believe that Jesus is God. How then has, does Jesus say that no man has seen God and lived? And I said, well, because Christ humbled himself, he condescended to men of low estate. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he took upon him the form of a servant but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And he tried to tell me that, well, Jesus was a God, but he wasn't God. And I realized very quickly that I was dealing with a Gnostic, and he wasn't calling to ask questions. He was calling to try to argue. And the first thing I asked, are you recording this for a blog? No, are you? Why would you think that? I don't know, because you seem like a snake. If it has no leg scales, it slithers, and it's got these squinty eyes, it might be a snake. Because I can tell who you are from hello. You had me at hello. Eventually I said, look, I'm not arguing with you. Well, I'm just asking questions. No, you're yelling at me over the phone. Click. He called back and left a nice voicemail. I should have saved it. It would have made the collection. Jesus is completely God. Jesus is completely man. This is a reality that we call the hypostatic union, and that word hypostatic comes from a Greek word that we would pronounce today hypostasis in the English language, but the word means substance. In some of the earliest church controversies, the debate was held whether Jesus was of the same substance as the Father, the same substance. And by that, they would mean essence, by that, they would mean, is he divine? Is he deity? And the Orthodox affirmed that Jesus was of the same substance as the Father. That is to say, as the Father is God, Jesus is God. Now, where would they get that idea from Scripture? I and my Father are one, Jesus said from his very own lips, his sweet lips in John chapter 10. The Jews hearing that said what? Well, we want to be one with God too. No, 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 no. 
The unbelieving Jews took up stones to stone him. He says, for what evil work do you stone me? He says, not for any sin, not for any evil, but because thou as man makest thyself God. To be one with God means that he is one substance, one essence with God. You and I are not one with the Father the way Jesus was one with the Father. We trust we know him. We trust we're born of him. We have been made partakers of the divine nature. But Jesus Christ and his Father are one. And this is what we refer to as the hypostatic union. The union between all that is God and all that is man except for sin in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that boggles your mind, you can say with the Apostle Paul, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. I can't understand how God became man. The God that told Moses, you cannot look upon me and live. I'll let you view my hinder parts as I pass. The God that is so great that as the heavens are high above the earth, so are his ways high above our ways. The God that spoke the universe into existence that formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That God became a human baby in the womb of a virgin named Mary. Initially, a cell. And then the cells divide. And the embryo grows into the fully formed baby that developed and grew and one day was born into the world and laid in a manger. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The Messiah had to be God. God had to do this. Because the work of salvation was something only God could do. You and I, any other man, any prophet, any priest, any of the kings of Israel, any preacher, any apostle. And by the way, every single one of those titles is a title that the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself. Any of those prophets, priests, kings, preachers, apostles... Each and every one of them had their own sin that they could not atone for, that they could not remedy, that they could not deal with. Because as Isaiah said, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep are gone astray. David himself says, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. It was something that we could not do. And so God himself comes into the world to save his people from their sins. But God cannot die. God, in all his glory, cannot be tainted with sin. How then does God take away the sins of God's people? God had to become a man, and as a man, Christ suffered and bled and died for our sins. God can't die. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, as Jesus, the Son of Man, lays down His life upon the cross of Calvary in our stead, suffering everything that we deserved. He had to be man because to save men, He had to become like unto His brethren, as Hebrews chapter 2 says. And so the hypostatic union, the combination, the union of deity and humanity is what was required for our salvation. From the beginning of time all the way back in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis, God has been promising that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. Salvation would come through the death of the Messiah. And all through the Old Testament, the message is Christ. Throughout history, the purpose is Christ. This entire existence is for the glory of Christ. 
The Messiah has to be God because the work is something only God could do. And he had to be man because he had to become flesh to die in the stead of his people. And again, this is a great mystery. As a man, the sufferings of Christ began immediately after his birth. I want you to think of all the suffering of Christ this morning because this afternoon we show his death. We show his death, and it is a bittersweet moment. His death brings us salvation, which is glorious and joyful. The year of jubilee has come, and we cry aloud and sing praises to him, but at the same time, it could not happen without his suffering for us. And his suffering began the moment that he was born. After the birth of Christ, you know that King Herod sought to kill him. Revelation 12 depicts it as a great red dragon seeking to slay the man-child after he had been born in symbols and in a vision. Herod slaughters all the male children in Judea under three years old. The family of Christ, using the proceeds from the gifts of the wise men, depart into Egypt and they hide there until Herod the Great had died. As a child, Jesus was misunderstood. Could you imagine raising the Christ child, who's always about his father's business, and for that reason he stays behind in Jerusalem, and his parents get two days away and see that he's not with the rest of the family, and they go back and they find him exactly where they lost him, in the temple. That might be one of the greatest parenting blunders of all time. God gives you a son and you lose him. He's, as we'll see in Psalm 69, a character that people mocked and scoffed. Because of the virgin birth, people often in Jesus' day would accuse his mother of sin. Because babies don't just suddenly spring into existence. That's happened once in the history of the world. You know why there are babies. And so... People would mock him his entire childhood. And even as an adult, that becomes a part of the verbiage of the unbelievers that would argue with him. He was rejected of his family even before the time of the cross. His brothers, he had other half-brothers. They would go on to be his preachers. But at one point in his life, they rejected him. Sibling rivalries are a serious problem in the world. Recently, I've been reading through the Old Testament, and you see this over and over with families where one parent will love one child more than the other, and maybe the other parent loves the other child, as with Jacob and Esau, and you have all of this family drama that happens because parents are partial to their children. You can only imagine the jealousy of growing up the younger brother of the only person without sin in the world. His brethren rejected him at times. He was forsaken by all of his friends. He was falsely tried three times. They lied about him. At each trial, they beat him. Eventually, the Romans scourged him. They made him carry his cross through the horde of mocking, screaming people where he eventually was nailed to it and he hung there. He was hanged upon the cross where he gave up the ghost and he died. It's no wonder then that Isaiah describes Jesus as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53 says, Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And that second question answers the first. Who believes the report of the gospel of Christ? To whom the arm of the Lord is revealed? As Jesus said to Peter, Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter knew Jesus was the Son of God because the Father had revealed Jesus to Peter. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. Most of us interpret that as he was not a beautiful man. The depictions of Jesus in Western culture are almost laughable at times. 
The Jesus of Hollywood is six foot two, six foot three, flowing blondish brown hair, blue eyes, a chiseled jaw, and a pointed nose, wearing a glowing white garment everywhere he went. But in reality, the Jesus of the Bible was a poor man, a carpenter's son. He was homeless. The foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was poor. He wore tattered clothing. He had but the clothes that were on his back. He had an unkept beard. We know that he had a beard because they plucked it from his face, according to Isaiah. His hair probably wasn't long, as they show it in modern films. And though he's the most beautiful man to have ever lived, there was no reason for anyone to look at him and say that he's a beautiful man according to the flesh. There is no beauty that we should desire him, verse 2. He is despised and rejected of men, of man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus of Nazareth suffered tremendously in the world. Turning to this particular psalm, I want to explain it as, and be very clear about the fact, that Psalm 69 depicts for us David's suffering in a way that points to the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are at least five specific references in this psalm that are quoted in the New Testament with relation to Christ, and that's what we'll consider today in our message. But as we begin to introduce this, just notice the first couple of verses of this particular psalm. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. Now, waters in the Bible are usually indicative of judgment and destruction. What happened in the days of Noah? There was water. What happened in the water? It drowned everyone in the world, but Noah and his three sons, their wives, and Noah's wife. So many times, waters depict judgment and suffering. David says that there are waters in his life, floodwaters of despair, if you were a deluge of suffering that penetrates even unto his soul. The sweet psalmist of Israel was a man that through divine inspiration wrote so poetically about the sufferings that he experienced in the world. David suffered much in his life. He had the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, not only by reason of those that hated him and afflicted him, but even at times, as you read in the 51st Psalm, because of his own sins. David suffered because he was a sinner And many times his sins brought terrible judgment in his life. Save me, O God, for the waters are come up into my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. You might think in modern terms, I'm in quicksand and I can't get out. I am coming to the deep waters where the floods overflow me, I am weary of my crying, my throat is dried, mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. And then he begins to go into the problem. People hate him without a cause, and those that hate him without a cause are more than the hairs of his head. This is a suffering psalm. David goes on to confess his own sin. O God, thou knowest my foolishness. My sins are not hid from thee. He confesses his iniquity to God. It's often pointed out in commentaries how this psalm can be divided. It can be divided into two with the division around verse 18. And each of those two sections uh, sections can be divided into three. But in this psalm, David is suffering at the hands of enemies, not because he's done wrong but because he has kept the commandments of God. You remember as we talked about suffering, one of the causes of suffering in the world is persecution. Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse that as they have hated him, they will hate you. And in the midst of that, he begins by telling you to let not your heart be troubled. 
begins that sermon with that statement. So when people hate you because they hate Christ, let not your heart be troubled. Elsewhere, he would say to rejoice, rejoice because they hate you for his sake. In fact, one of the Beatitudes in the book of Matthew chapter 5, you have all of these statements, blessed are, blessed are. Verse 11, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets which were before you. When you suffer persecution for Christ's sake is your first inclination to rejoice. That's not the way we are naturally. But you see it over and over in the book of Acts. The apostles, as they're arrested, as they're threatened, as they're beaten, as riots occur around them, why they go their way rejoicing that they were found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. David is suffering because of the Lord's sake. In other words, he's been faithful and enemies have withstood him. Look at verse 7, because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. For whose sake? For God's sake. In other words, David is suffering because he has been faithful to his God. Hailing back to message 2 of this series, being a follower of Christ invites affliction into your life. All of this experience was indeed, was indeed David's in a chronological sense before it was Christ. All of this affliction in this hymn of Israel was affliction that David experienced. But these sufferings of David, as we'll see, pointed far beyond the sufferings of that man that young harp player, the giant slayer, the keeper of his father Jesse's sheep, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart, the king of Israel. The sufferings that David experienced were ultimately the sufferings of a greater David, the son of David, Christ Jesus. David experiences these, yes. This is David's story. But at the same time, each and every one of these types of sufferings foreshadows David as a type of Christ, the sufferings of Christ in very specific ways. This psalm ultimately points to the greater David, the son of David, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. You know, the Christ was always known to be the son of David. God promises that the anointed, the Christ, will come through the lineage of David. Jesus brings this into his messages, what he's dealing with unbelievers in his day. He would say, whose son is the Christ? What say you of Christ? Whose son is he? In Matthew's gospel. And they would say, well, he is the son of David. And then he would say, how then does David say... The Lord has said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And they couldn't answer that. How could David's son be David's Lord? Because God was incarnate and this was in the lineage of David. The son of David holds his throne, as one of our hymns says. David was, in a sense, the father, the grandfather, as it were, of the Lord. How so? You see, Jesus had no biological father, but both adoptively through Joseph's line and biologically through Mary's line, because he is born of her, Jesus is an heir of David and has the right to the throne of David. Joel Beakey writes, David prays for deliverance and devotes his enemies to destruction in a manner that points to the sorrows of Christ. Charles Spurgeon expressed it this way, If any inquire of whom speaketh the psalmist this, of himself or of some other man? You know, that's language borrowed from Acts chapter 8 when the Ethiopian eunuch read from Isaiah 53. Speak the prophet this himself or some other man. 
Spurgeon says, if any man asks of whom speaketh the prophet this, or the psalmist this, of himself or some other man, we would reply of himself and some other man. In other words, David, yes, speaks of his suffering. But ultimately, there's a greater David with a greater suffering, a greater king, a greater servant, a greater sufferer that David has in view as he writes this psalm through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So David speaks first of himself, but also of Christ. Now, as far as what singular event in David's life this psalm expresses, the suffering that David experienced, is this David when he is afflicted by King Saul? Is this David when he was being chased by the Philistines? You know, last week the psalm actually had in the subheading that David was being afflicted by those in Gath. And so we have the language, that comforting language, what time I am afraid, he'll call upon God, he'll rush to God, he'll go into the strong tower of the name of God. We don't know the particular suffering of David here. We don't know what enemy has afflicted him. Was it the Philistines? Was it someone like Joab? Was it someone like his own offspring? As you know that there was insurrection in the lineage of David after his life and the lives of his family were destroyed because of his sin with Bathsheba in so many ways. We don't know. And really, ultimately, it, it doesn't matter. Because there's always another Joab. There's always another Philistine. There's always another Goliath. There's always another affliction. And David writes this in the midst of this suffering. Now, just breaking down his verbiage to you, and this psalm is far longer than we could consider, so we're only going to consider high points together. Regarding David's experience, he was afflicted, obviously, for no reason. He hadn't done anything wrong. But this affliction has come to him because he was persecuted for his faith. Again, verse 7, For thy sake have I borne reproach. To bear reproach, borne ends with an E here, and it means to bear up as if you're lifting it up and carrying it on your shoulders. He has borne affliction for his faith. Now, when this were to happen to us, if this were to happen to us, any sort of affliction, one of the things that we've expressed to you over and over in this series is that When the Christian is to face suffering, the response, whether it be common to man, whether it be chastening, whether it be judgment, whether it be persecution, or whether we're even suffering for some special cause like the man born blind or Lazarus who was suffered to get sick and die so Christ could raise him again for his glory that we might know Christ has power to raise the dead. Regardless of the affliction, our response is always to be what? Humility. Say it in your head. When we suffer, our response is to be humility. And it's hard to do. No one who stands behind a pulpit tells you to do that because he has it hammered out. David responds to this affliction with humility. Look at verse 10. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gates speak against me. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, In an acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, hear me in the truth of thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let not the water flood overflow me. He answers the dilemma from verses 1 and 2 with the prayer that he asks of God in verses 14 and 15. But you notice David's response prior to this, Lord, I'm humbling myself. In verse 5, he confesses his sins. O God, thou knowest my foolishness. My sins are not hid from thee. David responds to the affliction with humility. Next, David turns his enemies over to God to judge. Now, this is a lesson that we need to understand today. When we are afflicted, 
When we suffer at the hand of an evildoer, ultimately we are to turn our, this situation and our enemies and their affliction of us over to God. Now, I'm not telling you if someone comes into your house and attacks your wife that you don't defend her. No, you defend her. You defend your children. I'm not telling you if someone abuses you not to call the police. They are a terror to evil. God has ordained the powers that be. When someone commits a crime, you call and you report that. But ultimately, here's what I want you to get from David's perspective. When someone afflicts you, you turn that over to God. What does Paul say? Give not place to wrath. God has said, I will avenge. God is a revenger, an avenger of his children. Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will repay. And so we are not to give place to wrath. We are, we are not to allow wrath to dominate who we are. We're not to be vengeful or bitter towards others. What did Paul do when Alexander the coppersmith had stabbed him square between the shoulder blades? I don't know what particularly Alexander the coppersmith did, but it comes into Paul's writings to Timothy. Alexander the coppersmith has done me much evil. What does Paul say after that? The Lord reward him according to his works. When someone is afflicting you, you turn that over to God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And if you think, well, that just has to do with those that hate Christ, those that are the enemies of God. No. In Hebrews, when that language comes into the epistle, do you know what language follows it? The Lord will judge whom? His people. When that language enters the book of Hebrews, the Lord shall judge his people follows it. Meaning that not only is there vengeance upon the wicked, but there's even, in a sense, vengeance as God judges his people in the world. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. David turns his enemies over to God to judge them. Look at verse 22 through 25. Let their table become a snare before them. Does that sound familiar? Paul quotes it in Romans 11, referring to the Jews and their rejection of Christ. And that they should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom thou hast smitten. Now, by the way, this finds a direct fulfillment in the nation of Israel at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. The they whose eyes are darkened was the nation of Israel. The they whose habitation became desolate was the nation of Israel, and that happened to their city. It was overrun by pagans, and never has the worship of God been in Jerusalem like it was prior to their rejection of Christ and the destruction of that city in AD 70. But David prays imprecatory prayers. What is imprecatory praying? What is an imprecatory prayer? We mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. It's when the psalmist would pray for the destruction of God's enemies. At times he would say, Lord, break their teeth. Imprecatory prayers have a place in the life of the disciple, but I'm always reminded when I'm tempted to pray in such a way, the words of Jesus upon the cross, the very suffering man of Psalm 69, Lord, forgive them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When I'm tempted to pray an imprecatory prayer, I remember the words of Jesus. And then his disciple, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, Lord, lay this not to their charge. He prays forgiveness for them. And this psalm, David's experience in this psalm ends with praise. Verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. And it also ends with promise, for God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and have it in possession. Now we want to now point to Christ and look at how this psalm in specific shares with us some of the experience of the suffering of Christ 
in the life of David, how David's suffering points to the greater David. And so you might even consider this subheading, this last part of our message today regarding Christ. Regarding Christ. First of all, verse 4. Read this language. They that hate me without cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. In other words, I'm completely innocent. I have done nothing wrong, but people hate me for no reason. And again, I remind you that they hate him without a cause. They will hate you without a cause. In the life of the Lord Jesus, look at John 15. This cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled. It is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. John 15, 25 says that those words are applicable to Christ. They hated him without a cause. I want you to think about all of the hatred of Christ in the world. Because in America we had some semblance of morality until recent years, it was easy to be a Christian. Oh, of course, you'd have some people that call you a fanatic. You have people who think it's strange that you run not to the same excess of riot as they do, as Peter said. But it was easy to be a follower of Christ. You go to church. No one afflicts you. You read your Bible that you can buy in the dollar store, practically give the things away. What a country our forefathers and we up to this date have been blessed to live in. But mark my words, the days are coming when your gospel will not be well received by the culture around you. Now the message of God wants everyone to be healthy and wealthy and powerful and whatever you do is okay because God is love and he would never think ill thoughts about you. That message will be welcomed by the culture but not the message of sin, that there is sin and God is angry with it. And because of that, there's as much of a message about wrath as there is love upon the cross. God became man to suffer the wrath of his father upon the cross of Calvary. You cannot escape the reality of divine wrath upon sin when you look at the cross. Oh, we think about the great love of God for His people upon the cross, but it was a place of wrath that His Son bore. We cannot escape the wrath of the cross. It's going to become very unpopular to be a Christian in this world. And you young folks need to understand that it will not be as easy for you to be faithful to Christ as it was your grandparents. I mean, I've made comments before. You put out something on Twitter that God made them male and female, and so you're male or you're female based upon the way you were born according to your genetics, your chromosomes. Hello. And I get banned from the place for 12 hours. Really? Banned? I can't post that? You know, there's outright literal pornography on Twitter. There are calls for violence against conservatives on Twitter. There are people that take pictures of themselves with a decapitated head of the former president on Twitter, and all that's okay. But if you say you are male or female, you are born that way, marriage is between one male and one female, they'll kick you off the platform. If they do that on their digital space, what happens? What happens in 20 years? When the Powers that be continually cater to that. What happens when the First Amendment is diminished? We might have not have the right to freely say the things that we say. And you know what? We're going to say them anyway. Jesus says that in John 15 in a message in which he warns his disciples because they hated him, they will hate them as well. They hated Christ without a cause. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. They hate him because they are natural men. Now I've got great news for you in the gospel of Christ. There was a man named Saul of Tarsus that hated him. 
And because of that, he did everything he could to persecute God's people. But the grace of the Lord Jesus even reached the chief of sinners. Even when the world around you despises your Savior Jesus, Christ will save every single one of his people. Because the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. God's grace is stronger than the hatred of Saul of Tarsus. And he will arrest all of his beloved by his grace. Verse 6 of Psalm 69, from the perspective of the suffering servant of God, Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Now certainly this has to do with the life of David. But apply this to the crucifixion of Christ and let this hit you right in the stomach. As Jesus hung upon the cross... He had all the reason in the world to weep and cry over the pain of his body. Lashes across his back that dug down to the bone. Bruises on his face and his ribs and his legs and his arms from being pummeled. Gashes across his head from the crown of thorns. Swelling on his face and redness from his beard literally being pulled from his face. Nails piercing his hands and his feet. But when Christ was upon the cross, one of the thoughts that entered into his mind was for the sake of his disciples and their understanding of the event. What did the disciples do when Jesus was arrested? They ran and hid. And then they denied him. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Jesus is worried, if you'll use that term, concerned as a man hanging on the cross. Remember, he was God and in that nature, completely omniscient. But at the same time, he was Jesus as a man. He learned, he wept, he grieved, he mourned, he hungered, he thirsted as Jesus the Man from Nazareth, in his humanity, he's concerned, if you will, for his children, for the children of God who beheld that event, that they would be ashamed for his sake and confounded in their faith. He's even praying to God for his children and their struggle in that moment when he is suffering for their sins. If that does not humble you, I don't know what will. To know that he is suffering all that he suffered, and yet he's praying for you. You think about it, before he goes to the cross, what does he tell Peter? Peter, Satan hath desired you, all of you, plural you, that he might sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee, singular, Peter, that thy faith fail thee not. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Peter, you're about to face a trial like you have never experienced. And even though I'm going through all of this agony and grief, that he would sweat great drops of blood, he's praying for Peter's faith. As he's upon the cross, he prays for his troubled disciples. Verse 7, this is where it gets real. Because for thy sake, Jesus says to his father, I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered my face. Now, obviously, David, the author, was suffering persecution for his faith, but I want you to know that Christ suffered persecution for his faithfulness to his Father. That's sense number one of this text. Sense number two, Jesus is suffering because he has been sent by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Jesus has been sent into the world by his Father to bleed and die for thy sake, for thy sake, I have borne reproach. You have an arrangement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The Son agrees to save God's people from their sins before the world was created. 
he comes into the world to bear reproach. He was sent of God to that end. Verse 8, I am a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. A stranger unto his brethren. Christ was, number one, forsaken by his followers, even those who were his natural brethren, his brothers in the flesh, his half-brothers, but also of his brothers in Israel and his brothers in the Lord because he's our elder brother. Number two, I'm an alien unto my mother's children. He was not recognizable on account of the beating that they gave him prior to the cross. And so as we read in Isaiah 52, his visage was more marred than any man so that he was hardly recognizable as a man. They forsook him and those that saw him didn't even recognize him. By the way, I find it interesting that he says unto my mother's children... An alien unto my mother's children. You know who Jesus was not an alien unto? His mother. One of the only people that knew him that went to the cross and continued defiantly there before him was his dear mother. And one disciple whom Jesus loved, the Apostle John. Jesus looks, one of the few sayings of Christ on the cross, he looks at John and he looks at Mary and he says, Woman, behold thy son. And you might be thinking he's saying, Mother, look at me. No. He's looking at John. He looks at John and he looks at Mary and he says, Son, behold thy mother. He tells John on the cross, She is now your mother to care for because I'm going away. He was recognizable to his mother even amidst the beating. Verse 9. For the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Does that sound familiar? Where do we find that in the New Testament? Quoted, as with many of these passages with reference to Christ. When Christ goes into the temple in the book of John, chapter 2, verse 17, He flips the tables of the money changers. He makes a whip. He chases the animals and the people out of the temple. He purges His house. Again, it's funny, but people say, what would Jesus do? Making a weapon and driving the charlatans out of his house isn't the question. If Jesus, or isn't out of the question. If Jesus were to come today, there would be charlatans and preachers that he would run out of Christianity with a whip. And as that happens, we read, as it is written, for the zeal of thine house has eaten him up. The jealousy for God's house caused him to be so livid that he would chase the charlatans from his house. Also from verse 9, And the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. As we take communion today, one thought that I want you to remember is that the reproaches of those that reproached Christ or that reproached the Father, rather, have fallen upon Christ. The reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. Paul uses this in Romans chapter 15 as he talks about the fact that we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. In other words, we ought not to be running around the world screaming about what we want, what we deserve, what our rights are, but we ought to be looking for ways to help other people and humbling ourselves and serving our fellow man. What is the principle upon which that is built? For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell Upon me. What is Psalm 69 and verse 9 conveying to us? He that knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Verse 10, when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting and reproach, he speaks in 
this run of verses about sackcloth being his garment and becoming a proverb to them. He's a reproach. He's a proverb. Specifically, they that sit in the gate shall speak against me. What is the gate? A place of judgment. Trials were held in the gate. What is that speaking of? The trials of Christ. Beyond that, and I was the song of the drunkards. I've read historic reports of some of the things that people would sing about Christ, and they are hideous. They are horrendous. John Gill speculated that perhaps the drunkards to which he speaks in specific are the Roman soldiers that abused him and the soldiers of Herod that abused him prior to his crucifixion as they laugh and they mock and they shoot out the lip and they shake the head and they wag their heads at him. He was the song of the drunkard. Lastly, verse 21. See if you've ever heard this before. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst, listen, they gave me vinegar to drink. Where would we have heard that statement before? John chapter 19. They take the sop and they put it to the vinegar and they put it to the lips of Jesus after he cries out, I thirst. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, all things what? Including Psalm 69. That the scripture might be fulfilled, he says, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. And when he had received the vinegar, what did he say? It is finished. It comes from a single Greek word that can even mean that a payment has been paid in full. It is finished. As we read the suffering of Psalm 69 and the affliction, how terrible it was for him to be given such a a bitter drink as vinegar. As we read of that suffering, let us also remember that at that moment in his life, what does he cry? He cries, it is finished. Beloved, Salvation is completed. As we bring our message to a close, just look at the last little portion of this psalm. This psalm ends with, number one, God's vengeance on those who persecuted David and the greater David, Christ. The message in verse 22 is their table will become a snare, and that's quoted in Romans chapter 11. But greater than the vengeance upon God's enemies, this psalm ends as a message of hope and praise from God's people. Let's look at verse 35. For God will save Zion. What is the message behind the suffering man of God, the suffering David, the greater David in the 69th Psalm? God will save Zion. Now, you might think that that has to do with the hill, a mountain, upon which was the temple in the middle of Jerusalem in the first century, a place that has been vacated by the true worship of God for two millennia now. But I want you to understand that there is a Zion that is in the world today, and you have come unto that place today. Hebrews 12, 22, ye are come unto Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Your suffering servant, the greater David, the son of David, who sits upon his throne today, suffered that you would be saved. And from that psalm, as he received the vinegar, he cried out, It is finished, because salvation is a completed reality. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us this psalm about suffering, Lord, not only the suffering of your servant David, but the suffering of the greater David, the son of David, your son Jesus Christ, who came into the world 
who suffered for us, who took the vinegar, who received all of the hatred that this world had to give him and was victorious over all of it. We know, Lord, that his enemies will one day be judged and his people will one day be completely delivered from all the things that afflict them, even death. We thank you, Father, for this. We thank you, Lord, that it is finished. And we pray, Father, that we can show his death and his suffering this afternoon as we go to your table as we show his death until you come. Forgive us of our sins, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.